This is Guns and Butter. Eisenhower issued an order on May the 7th or 8th of 1945 in German from his headquarters in Frankfurt uh, and sent it by courier to every province of Germany. The order in that uh, courier message was that if anybody gathers food together with the intention of taking it to the camps or takes food to the camps, he or she may well be shot. And some people were shot. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, James Back. Today's show, Let's Stop Torturing Germany. James Back is a former journalist, book editor, and publisher. He has written novels, essays, short stories, a biography, a play, and books on the history of post-war Germany. His bestsellers, Other Losses and Crimes and Mercies, have revealed atrocities committed by the Allies against German POWs and civilians after World War II. Today we have an in-depth discussion of his most famous book, Other Losses, an investigation into the mass deaths of German prisoners at the hands of the French and Americans after World War II. We also touch on the real-life consequences of overstepping the bounds of Orthodox history. James Back, welcome. Thank you very much. I've just read your astonishing book, Other Losses, published in 1989, an investigation into the mass deaths of German prisoners at the hands of the French and Americans after World War II. The treatment of surrendered German soldiers was so horrifying, it was hard to read. Why did you title your book Other Losses? Because in the American prison camp system, starting in 1944, uh, there were... uh, boxes showing week by week the total of prisoners on hand, sick, transferred, discharged, and so on. There was no category for death. None. It was really hard to believe that the total capture being over 7 million people, many of them wounded, Uh, that there were no deaths for years. In fact, it was impossible. So there was one category that said other losses. It had enormous numbers, millions in the category. And uh, I thought, well, that's where they've hidden deaths and they've just called it other losses. I then found from uh, one of the guys who ran that prison system, Colonel Philip S. Lobben, that that was indeed true, that that was where they hid the death statistically. And uh, so that's why I called it Other Losses. In Colonel Ernest Fisher's foreword to Other Losses, he states that, quote, Eisenhower's hatred 
produced the horror of death camps unequaled by anything in American military history. Some idea of the magnitude of this horror can be gained when it is realized that these deaths exceed by far all those incurred by the German army in the West between June 1941 and April 1945, end quote. Eisenhower's hatred of Germans was apparently not shared by General Patton, Lee, or Bradley. Can you account for the brutality of Dwight Eisenhower toward defenseless prisoners of war? I speculated on that once in the process of writing the manuscript. I sent the typescript before publication to a great expert on Eisenhower. His name was Stephen E. Ambrose. And Steve read it over for me very kindly. And then I went out to his place in Lily Lake, Wisconsin. And we talked about Eisenhower and why he was like this. And Steve advised me not to speculate. Don't guess. You've got an amazing story here. Stick to it. And so I did. I did not speculate. And I hardly want to know. It happened, and that was horrifying. And why it happened is really hard to say. That's between him and God. Well, now, when you said that the records uh, that you examined hid all of the deaths under an innocuous category called other losses. Why do, yeah. you, th- why do you think that was done? Because they were ashamed of what they were doing, and they knew it was a war crime, and they didn't want to get caught. The content of other losses is extensively documented. How did you conduct your research for other losses, and what kinds of different evidence did you include? Oh, Bonnie, have you got a couple of years? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what it took, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, it really began when I read War and Peace, and I thought at the end of reading that book when I was in boarding school in Canada when I was 16, um, this man, Tolstoy, has made me understand people who were completely alien to me, Russian nobility of 1812, and I was just enchanted. I I grew up, uh, he became a hero of mine, and Gandhi, and I went to live in France for a while because my wife and I, she's just walked into the room with a glass of water for me, thank you, dear. And uh, uh, I wanted to live in France with her, with the kids, and we did. And we there encountered a man named Raoul Laporterie, who had been the mayor of a small town called Bascons, near Bordeaux in the southwest. And he, during the war, had saved uh, hundreds and hundreds and maybe 2,000 people mainly Jews in the rag trade, from Nazi persecution during the war. So I said, can I write your story? And he said, yes. 
and I uh, got a friend to come and help me, and I settled down in his village and began reading his correspondence from the year 1942, 3, and 4. This was now in the year 1986. So I was reading his correspondence about four, 40 years later. And in the correspondence, there were letters from German people with German names like Hans Gertz and Adam Heil. And uh, they said to Laporterie in these letters, which they wrote to him after the war, thus in 1946 or 7, remember the war was over in 1945, May 1945, they kept thanking him and writing to him as a friend, saying, you're a wonderful man, how's your wife, how are the kids, and so forth. So I went to the Porterie and I said, look, you fought these Germans in the First World War. You could have been killed by them in the Second World War. How come they're friends? And he said, well, after the war in 1946, the French government had a whole lot of prisoners Many of them turned over by the British and the Americans and the Canadians to uh, uh, French hands. And they were being used as slave labor to help rebuild France after the war. And Monsieur Laporterie had treated these semi-slaves very well. And they made friends. So uh, here I am in 1986 talking to Germans later on who had been friends of Monsieur Laporterie. And when I went to see one of them, he said, Monsieur Laporterie saved my life. And I said, how did he do that? Well, he took me out of the prison camp. Well, what was wrong with the prison camp? Well, Monsieur, you got to understand, we were starving to death. What, in 1946, I said? Of course, he said, 25% of the men in that camp died in one month. Wow. And that was because the French hated the Germans so much that they were murdering them by starvation. And... uh, the Americans were doing the same thing in their camps, I later found, murdering them by starvation and exposure. Was American record-keeping of German prisoners of war adequate for your research? <laughs> yes, it was. Once I understood the code, some of the uh, records were destroyed by Eisenhower himself, when he became president after the war, and uh, he destroyed some of those records. And I was told this by the chief archivist of modern military records in the United States, a man named Eddie Reese. And he said that uh, uh, all the uh, non-record material was destroyed, but there was enough left that with the help of Colonel Fisher and Colonel Laban, I was able to piece together the actual week-by-week 
uh, deaths and illnesses and so on. Could you describe the American enclosures, as opposed to Soviet camps, that German prisoners were kept in? Much worse than the Soviet camps. The Soviets at least gave their uh, prisoners after the war a roof and primitive clothing. In the American camps, the uh, prisoners, some of whom were wounded, had been dragged out of hospital half alive at the end of the war, were flung into these enclosures, uh, which were just fields surrounded by barbed wire and machine gun towers. That was it. That was it. They were left to die there. There was no food. There was not even water. And uh, they, uh, the Americans killed off three-quarters of a million healthy young men in the first uh, year or less than a year. How were surrendered German soldiers treated then by the American army? Deadly. It was deadly. There were about 7 million total in the capture, of whom maybe 6 million were German. And uh, uh, in the period of first year after the war, about uh, three-quarters of a million died, and a quarter of a million were turned over to the French, really, to die. In other losses, there are descriptions of death by disease, starvation, exposure, gunfire, even the bulldozing of live German prisoners within the enclosure. Many of these descriptions were made by eyewitnesses, both survivors and U.S. Army personnel. Isn't that right? Yes. They were confirmed by civilians outside the camps who could see what was happening inside the camps uh, through the barbed wire. The uh, death policy against Germans was extended quite soon uh, after the end of the war to include the whole population so there were some 60 million Germans penned up in what was really just one huge prison camp extending from the North Sea to the Alps and east to west from uh, France to Poland. Uh, those people were starved too. So far more German civilians were starved to death in that vast uh, enclosure than died during the war. Somewhere between 7 and 14 million German civilians died uh, as a result of Allied action after the war, which is way more than died during the war. I'm speaking with writer and researcher James Back. Today's show, Let's Stop Torturing Germany. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is the evidence that Dwight Eisenhower redesignated or reclassified prisoners of war, uh, POWs, as disarmed enemy forces, or DEFs? Why was this done, and what were the consequences? Well, it was done partly to make a statistical um, camouflage, 
remember, he was a general and a soldier. He loved camouflage. And um, the uh, camouflage helped to divert uh, attention away from uh, the deaths. I, I talked to the uh, senior war correspondent of the New York Times, who was named Drew Middleton, and who was there in the war in 1945, and he was still alive when I was doing research in 1946. And I went to New York, I showed him my evidence for the crime, and he said, I'm not surprised that you found something bad in that period. And uh, I said, well, you wrote in the New York Times that you visited the camps and everything was all right. No, there were no uh, deaths at all, and there was nothing wrong. And you published that. You wrote three stories like that in the New York Times, and um, he had nothing to say except, uh, well, it was a bad time. That was part of the camouflage. The New York Times lied about that in those days, and they've lied about me and my books ever since, many times. So with regard to Eisenhower's reclassification of prisoners of war to call them disarmed enemy forces, why did he do this, and what were the consequences? Well, he was able to keep the Red Cross out of the camps that way. He was able to uh, throw a, a fictional cloak over it all. And you see how in Washington today and all over the world, really, people uh, tell lies at the highest levels, and they can get away with them, partly because they've given the people, deceived people, at least something to believe It's not true, but it's something they can believe instead of the truth. In what ways were the rules of the Geneva Convention broken by the U.S. Army Command that was in control of German prisoners? Well, just about every way you can think of, but one of the chief ways was was to deny food that was readily available, The Red Cross sent uh, three trainloads of food into Germany for the prisoners, and uh, the army refused to allow them to unload, and they had to take the, the Red Cross had to take the food by the trainload out of the country. That was in the spring of 1945. And uh, Eisenhower issued an order on May the 7th or 8th of 1945 in German from his headquarters in Frankfurt uh, and sent it by courier to every province of Germany, which is like a state in the United States, and uh, sent those, uh, uh, the order in that uh, courier message was that if anybody gathers food together, with the intention of taking it to the camps or takes food to the camps, he or she may well be shot. And some people were shot. 
Was there a world food shortage in 1943 to 1945? I consulted the records of the... uh Department of Agriculture. I just I read a, a magazine report written by the UN in 1946, and I talked to some Canadian people who fed Germans after the war, and my conclusion was that there was no world food shortage, that there was a food distribution shortage, just the way there is now. Some people in the world are starving. And because of such bad distribution, uh, they don't get food that's readily available. You and I eat all the time, and yet in our very cities, there are people on the edge of starvation. It's the same then. Well, now, according to the Geneva Convention, you're required to feed prisoners of war, aren't you? Yeah. You're required to feed prisoners of war the same nourishment that your own peacetime soldiers get in base camp. In other words, plenty. Now, another provision of the Geneva Convention, aren't you then, by international law, required to provide shelter to POWs? Oh, yes. And there was no shortage of tents. Well, then, was there any shelter provided to these uh, POWs? No. Basically, no. The British and Canadians were not so bad. They uh, they let their prisoners live in hotels and so on, uh, and just told their commanding officers at the end of the war, "If you guys behave, you'll you'll go home soon." And that's pretty well what happened. There were some deaths, but not not a huge number. There was no mass atrocity. Part of the reason was that Winston Churchill. Uh, wanted to make war against Russia, and he thought he could uh, hire the Germans as mercenaries, uh, and he needed them alive for that, of course. So he kept making sure there was enough food for the Germans in the Canadian and British sections. Not so in the French, American, and Russian sections. Well, now, another provision of the Geneva Convention, aren't prisoners uh, required to be able to send and receive mail? Yes. And they didn't. They didn't get that privilege at all in the American camps. And as well, um, visits from the International Committee of the Red Cross. That's also a provision of the Geneva Convention, isn't it? Yes, that's right. But they were in on it. I, in 1986, with most of this story in in hand, I I went to the headquarters of the ICRC in Geneva, and they refused to allow me to look at their records. Uh, And uh, uh, yet an Israeli writer, a Swiss writer, and Alfred Desaias, my friend in the UN, they were all permitted to go into the archives, but... They kept me out because they knew what I was up to. So are you saying that you think the ICRC then was complicit in this? After the war, they certainly were. During the war, I don't think so. Uh, not uh, Maybe in, in the uh, 
in Germany in 1945 to 1950, perhaps, I couldn't say. But they certainly were complicit in the cover-up when I was snooping around. Exactly. I mean, obviously, they're complicit in the cover-up. But then again, if the U.S. Army Command was not allowing them, the Red Cross, to go into the camps or to provide food, there probably wasn't much of anything the Red Cross could have done about that, do you think? They could have turned up at the U.N. There were meetings of the U.N. beginning in San Francisco in the spring of 1945 during the immediate weeks after the war, and they could have raised that uh, right there, but they didn't do it. They're all bureaucrats. They don't care much. I see. see. So then, in general, how do provisions of the Geneva Convention protect prisoners of war? They don't. Well, the provisions of the Geneva Convention do. Yeah, but they don't work. People don't pay any attention to them. They they will work as so long as there's a hostage system in place. While the war was on and there were Americans, uh, 100,000 of them, being held in German prison camps, uh, that worked because it meant that the Germans could uh, starve Americans if the Americans starved Germans. That happened with the Canadians. They shackled some German prisoners, and when the Red Cross found out about it, they told on the Canadians, and the uh, the Germans said, okay, we're going to shackle your boys. And that worked. Both sides then took the shackles off. I understand from your book that only prisoners in American custody were denied prisoner of war status, and that the British refused to go along with this. That's largely true, yeah. According to your research, Eisenhower's denial of prisoner of war status to surrendered German soldiers was kept secret, and that Eisenhower lied to the public about the treatment of German prisoners. Is that right? Oh, yes. Frequently. Lied frequently. Caused others to lie. Hid evidence and presided over a vast murder machine, not just the army during the war, but after the war as well. Uh, But the funny thing is that there was a man named Robert Patterson, who was the Secretary of War under Truman, and at any rate, uh, Robert Patterson, and he and some Canadians got together and uh, sent food over entirely against Uh, army policy, and they sent food over by the millions of tons to feed starving people in Europe, uh, at first excluding Germans, but within a few months including the Germans, and that was a mercy put on by the North Americans, where there was plenty of food. That's the only really happy part of this whole grismal story that the Canadians and the Americans said no to Eisenhower, no to vengeance, yes to Christian charity, compassion, and sympathy. So then this food that you're referring to sent by basically by the public, did this actually reach starving people in Europe? Oh, yeah. 
And what year was that? Uh, well, it started in 1946 when the starvation was getting near the worst, and it went on for a couple more years. There was one very funny story there that some Mennonites in Canada and the States rounded up uh, wheat in uh, sacks, thousands of sacks of wheat. And because they were sending them over to Mennonites to be distributed in Mennonite churches, they put some Bibles in. So the Mennonites at the other end were throwing the uh, wheat in big bags off the ships, uh, then took the bags and dumped them into macerators to start the process of turning them into flour. And when they got the flour, they looked in, and they saw these bits of paper floating around. And they realized that they chopped up. They didn't know the Bibles were in with the wheat. So they chopped up the Bibles, and uh, they sent a message over to the Mennonites in Canada saying, uh, What's going on here? What is it? What's happened? And the Mennonites wrote back to them saying, read your Bible. Man does not live by bread alone. <laughs> you got to eat your Bible, too. <laughs> How do you like that one? I'm speaking with writer and researcher James Back. Today's show, Let's Stop Torturing Germany. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In your book, speaking of Dwight Eisenhower, quote, he was talking about reducing rations for prisoners of war who were already dying of starvation under the eyes of U.S. Army doctors. Yeah. Did German soldiers ever get much food, and and was food readily available? Well, I tried to tell you this already, Bonnie, but... uh... You don't want to believe it, and I don't. I don't blame you. It's so ugly. No, they they never got any food to speak of. Uh, when they got a little bit of food, the guards might take it away from them, or they were already too sick to digest it, and they just vomited up the little food they got, or whatever. It was just a ghastly scene. According to your book. Thousands of women, children, and the elderly were also imprisoned in these horrible American death camps. Yeah, that's right. Not very many, I don't think. But uh, nearly every man in Germany, nearly every male over the age of 14 or so was imprisoned. And I don't know where they stopped short. Maybe, Maybe if they had arthritis and they couldn't walk, you know, I don't know. But quite a few women, but all I know is that there were some. Henry Morgenthau, Jr. was Secretary of the Treasury and worked very closely with Franklin Delano Roosevelt on plans to deal with the defeated post-World War II Germany. First of all, why would the Secretary of the Treasury be working on these plans rather than the Secretary of State? Because he he hated Germans and he wanted to be there in Germany making things hard for the German people. There was incredible hatred of Germans then, and it's still there. There are lots of Americans and Canadians who hate Germans to this day, to the extent 
that they cannot believe uh, that in the war uh, the Germans did anything but murder and rape and uh, torture people. Can you describe what came to be known as the Morgenthau Plan for post-World War II Europe to destroy German industry and turn Germany into an agricultural country? Yes, that was part of it. But the main purpose was to kill Germans, and they did. And uh, it was a success in the sense that Henry Morgenthau, who got fired by Truman, who didn't like him, um, partly because he was so vengeful and stupid. He was a very stupid person. And uh, the uh, he went over for the New York Post uh, in uh, 1946 or 7, I've forgotten the year, uh, to write a series of articles about how Germany was doing under American and British and Soviet and French occupation. And he wrote... Uh, a series of articles in which he confirmed that the Morgenthau Plan had been implemented as part of overall Allied policy in Germany, and Germans were, were dying as a result. That's quoted in the book. Now, who who was it that was writing these news stories? Morgenthau. Oh, he wrote them himself? Yeah. They Did were he... published. Published well, over his byline in the New York Post. Well, how was he presenting his own Morgenthau plan? Well, he worked it out with a guy called Harry Dexter White, who was a communist, and uh, uh, he, he and White uh, worked up this plan, and they gave it to Roosevelt and Churchill at their meeting in Quebec in 1944, and they both signed it. This was their policy to starve and uh, beat down the Germans as much as they could. And uh, so it became official policy. And then when the newspapers got a hold of it, they said, you can't do that. That's terrible. That's not what we're fighting the war for, this vengeance. We want the war to be over. And... Uh, so Roosevelt covered up and um, hid it all and uh, uh, pretended that it was not going to be implemented, but it turned up again in the spring of 1945 as JCS-1067, which means Joint Chiefs of Staff Policy Directive 1067, How to Treat the German People. Right, and the Morgenthau Plan was then incorporated into this official U.S. government directive. Isn't that right? That's right. Now, how is it that Morgenthau and uh, Roosevelt, they were close, weren't they? Very close friends. Does that seem somewhat strange to you? Well, um... They were political allies. Um, Morgenthau, I guess, uh, sucked up to Roosevelt, uh, flattered him. Uh, who knows, maybe he bribed him, although Roosevelt was rich. Uh, maybe he thought he had uh, 
political or at least newspaper influence. It's it's hard to say what constitutes a friendship. And then Roosevelt uh, completely approved of this Morgenthau plan, and even in your book it says he uh, that Roosevelt reiterated his enthusiasm and support for Morgenthau for the Morgenthau plan the day before he died. Yes, he was kind of an extremist then, but uh, and he was probably just hoping uh, to get rid of Morgenthau, who was a pest. And uh, Roosevelt was feeling terrible. Of course, he had a brain tumor, I think it was. And he, he was probably saying, there, there, Henry, it's all right. We're going we're gonna to beat up the Germans. Don't worry. Something like that, probably. I'm only guessing there. I understand from your book that Winston Churchill was initially horrified and refused to go along with the Morgenthau plan, but was eventually persuaded by the argument that British industry would benefit. Yeah, well, he said he was. Uh, it's hard to say. The funny thing is, what's funny about this, uh, by, you know, the if the idea was to beat down the Germans so they wouldn't uh, be rich again, then by 1965, just a couple, a few years after the war, the Germans were once again the richest people in Europe. You couldn't stop them. You still can't. And the reason is, of course, they work hard, they're smart, they're well-educated, and they're organized. Yes, it is quite amazing. Yeah. It just shows how stupid war is. That war especially. But both the First and the Second World War were conducted, fomented by the British uh, to do down the Germans, do them in, kill them all if they could, and um, it failed. They won the war and lost their empire, and uh, furthermore, they, they couldn't extinguish German strength. Yes, it's interesting. Both world wars were pretty much a contest between the British and the Germans, right? And that the wars were basically brought on by Britain, not Germany. That's right, and the Canadians played a terrible part of that, too. We in Canada did our very best to push you guys in the States into the war. Most of you didn't want to go to war. You didn't care about it uh, one way or the other. And we sent people down to bribe your newspaper columnists and your uh, government said to tell them that uh, uh, the Germans were committing atrocities, which wasn't true, and to bribe your writers and so on into saying that Germans were evil and torturing people. And all of that has endured. And uh, the Americans finally came into the war a Gallup poll in August of 1942, after Pearl Harbor, said that 67% of American people had no idea why you were in the war. Wow. Now, what is Canada's angle in all of this? Why, why, is, why did Canada want this war? Well, because Canada just did whatever the British said to do. Oh. Not, not, not only that, but that was a large part of it. Well, you guys did the same. 
you, you were completely independent of Great Britain, but you came along finally. Roosevelt got persuaded by Churchill to get into the war, and he did all he could to foment Pearl Harbor, and uh, so did uh, Churchill. Anyway, we won't get into that. But uh, the Americans under Roosevelt had already said, we won't go into this war. We don't have a, a dog in that fight. And uh, But they, they went in anyway. According to your research, 73% of all German prisoners were taken by the West. The death rate of German prisoners under American control was calculated at one point to be 43% per year. And according to then-German Chancellor Adenauer, over 1.4 million to 1.7 million German soldiers that were alive after the war remain unaccounted for. What is the dead in the East theory? Uh, the dead in the East theory is that the uh, most of the Germans who died after the war were in Russian prison camps, and uh, there was a huge death rate. And uh, that's uh, partly true, but it did not account for all of the missing prisoners. It actually covered up uh, missing prisoners in the West, isn't that right? Uh, well, that's what it was intended to. Yeah, that's right. I'm speaking with writer and researcher James Back. Today's show, Let's Stop Torturing Germany. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. After the first publication of Other Losses in 1989, the Soviet Union collapsed. In 1992 and 1993, you flew to Moscow to investigate the newly opened Central State Special Archive of the KGB containing millions of documents about prisoners of war. What, yeah. I, what is your assessment of the Soviet archives, and what did you find there? Well, I found uh, a great big building, very well organized, with lots of documents, and the chief thing about it was that it was reliable. The documents which were stored by the Soviet people before the Soviet regime collapsed told the truth about the Soviet regime because they felt no shame in murdering their own people, murdering the Kulaks, murdering the Finns, murdering the Germans. It didn't matter. They, they proceeded by murder. Their gulag was vast death camps. Well, so you, you can see that the uh, archives are reliable if they're storing records of their own atrocities. And they check out with the figures produced later by the Germans and the Japanese and other people who had uh, many prisoners in those gulags. And I was able to get any paper I wanted and have it translated and bring it home in Xerox copies. And I did that, 74 or 50 or maybe 100 papers all told that I brought home that proved uh, the real death rate in the Soviet camps was not enough 
to account for all the missing in the West. So the real figures turned out to be about half a million dead in the Soviet Union, about a quarter of a million dead in the French camps, and about three-quarters of a million dead in the American camps, plus all the many, many, many millions of women and children who died as a result of starvation in Germany between 1945 and 1950. And this was forced starvation, right? Oh, yes. The uh, Allies forced the Germans to stop uh, making fertilizer for the fields, stop making oil to run the tractors. They sank fishing boats in harbor, on and on and on like that. And this forced starvation of the German population, this continued right up until 1950, didn't it? Yes, that's right. It was diminishing, but it was still bad. You wouldn't take anybody out to dinner in Germany in 1949. How did Soviet work camps contrast with the American enclosures? Oh, my God. (laughs) What a huge question. Well, the gulag was bad, but it wasn't quite as bad as the American camps. On the other hand, the gulag would last for years and years. The American camps were all pretty well empty by, oh, two years after the war. But now, how were were POWs treated in the Soviet, I guess they were work camps, weren't they? Pretty much they were, yeah. But then again, the Soviets provided shelter and food, etc., didn't they? Yes, they did. It wasn't uh, really enough to sustain life, but it wasn't as bad as the American camps. People didn't die directly right away of starvation and the, the diseases that killed them, really. And the Soviet camps quite as fast as they died in the American camps. What about the British delivering Russian Revolution defectors back over to the Soviets after World War II? What did this entail, and why was it done? Well, when the Germans attacked Russia, there were a whole lot of Ukrainian Russians who were dissidents, who did not like the regime. And they were willing to fight for the Germans, and they tried to join up. And Hitler wouldn't have them at first because it diluted the racial purity of the Wehrmacht. And, uh, but eventually he did. So there were a whole bunch of uh, people under General Vlasov who became called Vlasovites, who put on German uniforms and fought against the Russians on the German side. These were Russian-speaking Ukrainian, uh, for the most part, and uh, they were regarded with horror and hatred by Stalin because, of course, uh, they showed up the horror of the Soviet regime. And uh, after the war, the Soviets demanded that Eisenhower and the British turn over all the ones they'd captured. And the British had most of them, some 70,000, I think, Somewhere between fifty and 100,000 
quite a sizable army. And uh, the British forced those people at gunpoint to get on the trains to go back to Russia to be murdered. Now, were these largely Ukrainians, or were they uh, Russian Revolution defectors from other European countries? They were largely, I understand it, Ukrainians. This was not my field of research, so I didn't find out enough about them to answer your question for sure. You write that the evidence of these war crimes of mass deaths of German prisoners is still being suppressed by the governments of Germany, the U.S., France, and Britain. Why and, ha- Canada. and Canada. And Canada. Okay. Why haven't Germans countermanded the official Western propaganda about World War II and its aftermath? Well, because right after the war, the German government was taken over by the Americans, the French, and the Russians, and so on. And um, if anyone tried to protest against Allied policy of starvation and so forth, uh, they were punished. And uh, they might be deprived of food, they might be shot, might be taken to jail, who knows. And so, by force and by lies and deceit and by bribery, the Germans were gradually re-educated to believe that they were all criminals and all their ancestors were criminals and there was nothing worthy or respectable about Germany at all. And that situation continues today. Most Germans today are ashamed of their past and ashamed to be German and uh, all they have to do in life, they think, is work hard and get rich. What happens to persons in Germany who seek to locate mass graves of World War II German prisoners or who question the official narrative of World War II itself? They're thrown in jail, deprived of their job and thrown in jail, and maybe tortured. It's like the gulag. What and about- it's supported by Americans, French, Canadians, and British. What about the real-life consequences of overstepping the bounds of Orthodox history? What have been the effects of your discoveries on you and your family? For instance, I'm bankrupt and I can't publish. What was the reaction in 1989 when the first edition of Other Losses was published? Disbelief and incredulity and uh, amazement, except in Germany where there are still millions of people in 1986, 1989, who knew that I was telling the truth. Now, after the publication of Other Losses, weren't you then contacted by many, many eyewitnesses and uh, survivors of Eisenhower's death camps? Yes, many of them contacted me, and they still are. I had my 90th birthday the other day, And people were phoning me from Germany and all over Canada to wish me happy birthday. That was really nice. But I want to say to them and to you, Bonnie, with your permission, uh, my grandsons and I are putting together 
a crowdfunding campaign under my name, James Back, B-A-C-Q-U-E, and you can uh, crowdfund my next books uh, because I can't publish them with a regular house. i got to publish them myself on the net, and that takes a lot of money. So please crowdfund and go to my website, which is jamesback.com. That's J-A-M-E-S, back, B-A-C-Q-U-E, dot com. And uh, I can promise you a merry ride when you read my books. Well, now, James, uh, when I first ask you about the real-life consequences of your work, you mentioned that you're not allowed to publish. Is that correct? Well, that's the way it's happened. The critics and the uh, publishers and editors and so on throughout Canada, Germany, the States, uh, and France have all uh, ganged up to hate me and hate my work because they hate Germans so much and they think I'm sympathetic with the Germans. I'm only sympathetic with the Germans insofar as they're suffering human beings like all of us. And they, uh, I do not sympathize with their Nazi regime or their own Gestapo and all that. But I see that they have been suffering too and that uh, they need help and understanding uh, and truth, just as we all do. So that's what I'm trying to bring them in my books. Do you have an opinion as to what generated originally this hatred of Germany? Yes, you can find that out quite easily, actually. Uh, The British were afraid of the Germans because by 1895, the Germans were producing as much steel every year as the French and the British put together. They were having just as many babies and so on. They were organized and they were threatening the British Empire. And the British, instead of uh, cooperating with the Germans and so forth, of doing business with them, which they're very good at, the British, uh, decided to take the route of hostility and to fight the Germans. And so uh, uh, they fomented the First World War. All of this is written up in a book called Hidden History by Doherty and McGregor. But that book, a marvelous piece of research and understanding, does a wonderful job of exposing the fact that the two German wars were not only not necessary, they were disastrous failures for the British as well as for the Germans. Because the British lost their empire. And look at them now. They're confused. They don't know what they're doing. They're as bad as Washington and Ottawa right now. Now, James, I didn't realize initially, but you have a film about other losses. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it's a DVD, and uh, it's available via my website. And if anybody wants a book or a a DVD, you're very welcome to write in and get it, and we'll send you a copy of whatever you order. James Back, thank you so very much.
Thank you, Bonnie Faulkner. You're very welcome. I've been speaking with James Back. Today's show has been Let's Stop Torturing Germany. James Back is a writer and researcher, a former journalist, book editor, and publisher. His most famous books, Other Losses and Crimes and Mercies, have revealed atrocities committed by the Allies against German POWs and civilians after World War II. Other Losses, the subject of today's program, is also available as a one-hour documentary on DVD directed by James Back, which includes unique archival footage and new interviews with survivors of Allied vengeance in conquered Germany. His many books and films are available through his website at jamesback.com. That's jamesbacque.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Say it's time that we live in G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? 